Our second lesson comes from the book of James. We'll be in chapter 1 as we begin a few weeks spending some time in the book of James. And I encourage you in your discipleship this week to read the full chapter as it's listed here. I'm going to uh, begin for us today reading in the 12th verse. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my brother, beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at the natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perceives and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows and in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we come into, for the next few weeks, into the book of James and with uh, the Psalms standing with it, it's appropriate that James on this uh, solemn weekend of 9-11 begins by reminding us about standing firm in trials and temptations. I heard a story this week, a read one actually by Rick Lawrence. He was telling the story of an encounter he had with a, a wonderful uh, young woman of faith she was a teenager and she'd been participating in the leadership of her denomination celebration of Holy Week. And in conversation uh, with her and later with uh, conversations with many teams like her, a similar sentiment would come 
out from under the microscope of conversation and into the eyes of all those who could see and hear. What was that conversation? Well, he asked her after her great leadership and invitation to help others walk in faith in Jesus. He said, well, what would you do? How would you communicate this great gift of love and faith of Jesus if you were to introduce him to someone who didn't know Jesus? And so she thought for a moment and she shared, well, I think, I think I'd have to say that Jesus is very, very nice. Well, he took that thoughtful answer that uh, she gave and, and asked her a follow-up question. Well, what do you do with the, you know, the part where we learn that Jesus got angry and turned over tables in the temple and knocked things down? And, well, she gave some thought to that with a furrowed brow and thought some more and said, well, I guess I don't know, but if Jesus did it, it had to have been nice, right? And that kind of sentiment, which is reflected uh, in a survey that, uh, in, in deep study that I studied some years ago, the re- a study of uh, religion and youth throughout our nation, and the study that he would follow in conversation with other teams uh, would affirm this thought that many of us have, not just young teams, but many of us in faith, that, that Jesus is n- nice. And when we reduce our commitment to the truth of who Jesus is and to the grace that he offers us to being nice, I fear that when we come to trials and temptations, that won't stand that kind of box that we put Jesus in. Because Jesus wasn't just nice. And just a nice Jesus isn't able to deal with the reality that we face in the world, the reality that we've been reminded of in these recent weeks and in most especially this weekend again. A nice Jesus, as I like how Rick Lawrence will go on to write about it, isn't hard enough, as he writes, or tough enough or real enough to walk with people into the dark alleys of life. And I'll step outside of this quote for a moment to say that we all walk through dark alleys in life. He goes on to say, that's exactly why we're asking us to have a deeper, more real conversation about him. If the only Jesus we've experienced in the church is a Mr. Rogers knockoff, they're naturally turned to lesser gods that promise better results, including things like humanism or drugs and alcohol or affluence or video games or social networking or sexual experimentation or spirituality of all kinds or sports or academic achievement or 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 vocational achievement you see friends these kind of places that Lawrence writes about are the ways that we seek out other gods when we've put Jesus in a box of just being nice or not enough the truth is if we're honest 
all of us and why we need to come in confession and come and seek forgiveness anew regularly before our Lord, all of us put lesser gods before the one true God at different moments in our life. But we need, you and I, all of us, we need the real Jesus who loved us not just nicely, but to the ugliness of the cross with outstretched arms to deal with the brokenness of the real world that you and I face. Or as the psalmist wrote, as we heard, oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. That mountain would be the cross, finally, for you and me. Now look, sometimes we just, we don't want to bear it. We don't want to hear what we don't want to hear. It's hard for us to hear something challenging. And sometimes it's, uh, we, we go to these other lesser gods because we don't know how to juxtapose the reality of the world that we face and the reality of who God really is and with us in the midst of those dark valleys. And so, here we are in God's Word, in the letter from James to the church. It's a letter, a book, that is challenging and confronts us. It's a letter to the believer, most particularly. Although, if you're not a believer here today, this word is still transformational for all of us to come to the gospel. But he's particularly writing to believers to either return to the faith or to live out this faith that they've been given. Now, you know when you, you text in all caps or you uh, go on social media and you read someone's post in all caps, may, you, you may already know that that's the equivalent that is the equivalent of shouting of yelling well that equivalence of shouting or yelling out before the uh, us from the word of god is what james is often doing in this text you see almost as one scholar noted, almost every other verse in the letter to James is written in the imperative. It might be why the church through the ages, especially uh, in the last 500 years, but really uh, through the ages, has often uh, listened to James with a lesser key. Maybe we didn't like getting shouted at. It could also be, maybe some of you who are Lutheran uh, scholars know that Martin Luther, especially in 1522 and 1524 in his writings about the New Testament, wasn't quite a great fan of the book of James. You'd note, if you uh, looked at that history that Luther pointed out, uh, that, and he talked derivatively of James by calling him Jimmy, uh, he said this is just a book of straw. He was worried that folks would hear this call to live out their faith as a works righteousness that somehow we could save ourselves. 
But when you take a closer look at the book of James, you realize it's not works righteousness. It's about living into the identity that we've been given. Luther was wrong. Verse 18 that we read today, of his own will, that is God, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The the action that we take is a, a fruit of the word, as it says in verse 21 then, implanted in us. And what is it that saves our souls? It's the word implanted in us. So one of the gifts I think that God brings us from the book of James isn't just a call for action under trial, and it most certainly is that. But it also serves as a testament, I believe, to the truthfulness of God's Word. The church has wrestled with the book of James through the years. In fact, the first 300 years of the church uh, history... Uh, there were some questions about its authorship. I'll talk about that. Its canicity. Should it be part of the Bible? And, and, and how to deal with it. For example, in its authorship, we've wondered, well, well, which James is it? And I agree with several scholars and the tradition of the church today, but uh, some modern scholars I was listening to and uh, hearing their lectures on who believe, as the church has now taught since uh, the beginning of this letter, really, and through the ages, and most particularly from 314 on, that this most definitely was written by James, the half-brother of Jesus. There are some reasons for that, uh, just to uh, help you out as you test the Word of God. And that is that, for example, uh, he only introduces himself as James. Now, if I said to you, and I was talking about Elvis, you'd know who I'm talking about, right? If you use a one-word name for someone, they have to be famous enough to be able to do that. James, as one scholar pointed out uh, from my generation, is about as popular of a name as Jennifer or John would be in the 1970s, right? And so to say this letter is written by James would tell the reader nothing unless this person was of significance in the early church. Well, there were three James who were particularly significant. And although James was written very early, possibly, some scholars suggest, one of the earliest letters in the New Testament... Both the other James that would have been that popular were dead at the time of its writing. So James, the half-brother of Jesus, significant leader in the early church, is its author. Its canicity was wrestled with as it looked at the work of uh, the church to live out its faith and not think of it as works righteousness. And so the content, the authorship... Even to, to this day, people still argue, if you can believe it, and I don't, it sounds like a pretty dull argument to me about how James should be outlined. But to all of this, I share with you today, not just as a history lesson, but to share this, that even the word of God itself comes under test and trial, and guess what? It remains faithful. And since 314 AD, although those like Luther would still argue against it, uh, we don't take the 
a word of one person's opinion to determine the word of God. We do so by the power of the Holy Spirit working through the whole church. And through testing, the, the word of God is not afraid to be tested. The church is not afraid to ask questions. And since 314 AD, there really uh, has been no question that this is part of the canon. By the way, about 10 years later in Luther's life, in 1535, he would soften, he would even preach a sermon from the book of James. The Word of God does its work on us. I share all this so that you and I can trust it. And when we are tested and under trial, we know that the promise of the Word is faithful. And so the invitation in this letter, both in the first 11 verses and then again in the verses 12 to 27 that I read, invite us to endure trial and temptation, to seek wisdom, to seek wisdom in obedience and in speech, and to care for the afflicted. He repeats that twice in introducing his letter, those three clarion calls. And then he'll deal with them in reverse order throughout the rest of the book. So how do we stand test and trials? Well, do you remember in the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 3, Radshach, Meshach, and Abednego? Do you remember the story of how they stood against the king and the forces of that culture and day and say, no, we're going to be remain faithful to the word of God and to the truth of who God is instead of worshiping other lesser gods, false gods. And they said, even if we're thrown into the fire and even if God doesn't rescue us, although we think he will, we will stand firm. How do they do that? How do we do that? And by the way, they weren't spared the trial. They weren't spared the fire. Often you and I aren't either. But here's what's significant. When they were thrown into that fire, and this is what the book of James preaches to us today, they were not alone. God was with them. They remained faithful, not because of their greatness, but because of who was with them. And so we are to endure temptation and trial because although we know that God didn't tempt us, and although the temptation or trial might be and might most certainly is overwhelming and too hard for us to handle, we can remember as hard as it is, whatever you are walking through, that you do not walk alone. We can endure because of not a nice Jesus, but a Jesus who went to the cross, an ugly cross, to promise that we will not be separated from God, that He will be with us. So where is the Lord texting you in all caps today? Where is God texting you in all caps today in the imperative? If you feel like, oh, I, I have not followed what James is saying here. I have fallen short. Then the word is doing its work and it's leading you and me, like all of us need to, to repentance and guess what? To forgiveness and grace. 
And if you feel like you're too weak in the midst of the trials that this world throws at you and throws at us, then the word is reminding you today, you are not alone. How is the Lord calling you to remain faithful, to endure because he is with you? I can't help but on this day think of heroes who are on our hearts today who were called to run up the stairs, to run into the smoke. How can we be that kind of loving servants in these kind of trials? It's because the Lord is with us so that we can, like those heroes, love others and share the good news of the gospel faithfully, the good news of the word, verse 21, implanted in you that will save your soul. I'm going to end where chapter 1 ends with a reminder of your and mine and all those in Christ Jesus, our identity. Because it's an invitation to look in the mirror. And as the text reminds us, as you look in the mirror, it reminds us that sometimes we too quickly forget who we are. We walk away from that mirror and go out into the world and live our life and forget that we are children of God. And we seek lesser gods or we don't walk in the way of the Lord. And so what does that mean? We need grace to be sure and God's forgiveness anew. But we're also being challenged here to remember that baptismal vocational call and to remember our identity in Christ. And where does that identity come from? The implanted word. It is the work of God in us who never leaves us. And because he is with us, because he outstretched his arms on the cross, we can stand any trial, not because you're so tough or I'm so tough, but because of the love of the one who outstretched his arms for us. And so may we hear these words of God from this letter in James. May we answer the call of the implanted word in us and remember our identity in Christ Jesus this day and all the days ahead. Amen.